0: You're listening to B Side, the podcast about the second acts and side hustles of rock musicians. It's a drizzly afternoon in Seattle, and I'm waiting for the ferry to Bainbridge Island. I'm heading across the Puget Sound to visit a cannabis shop called Paper and Leaf. Your attention, please. We are now arriving at our destination. Thank you for sailing aboard the Washington State Ferries. Paper and Leaf is the only cannabis shop on Bainbridge Island, and that's not the only thing that makes it unique.
1: Welcome to Paper and Leaf, can I see your ID?
0: The shop looks more like an art gallery or an upscale wine boutique, and that's by design. Co-owner Brendan Hill says he wants to take away the stigma associated with typical marijuana dispensaries. Hill opened Paper and Leaf back in 2015, after the state of Washington granted a cannabis retail license to Bainbridge Island. But before Brendan Hill was breaking the mold of what a cannabis shop should look like, this was his gig. That's the band Blues Traveler with the song Runaround. It was a top 10 hit in 1995 and it even took home a Grammy Award for Best Rock Vocal Performance by a duo or group. Runaround was the first single off the band's breakthrough album Four, which sold more than six million copies in the United States. Blues Traveler was one of the leaders in the jam band movement of the 1990s, powered by the incredible harmonica playing of lead singer John Popper. All in all, Blues Traveler has released 13 albums and is still going strong today. The drummer for Blues Traveler is none other than Brendan Hill, and this is his B-side. Brendan Hill, thank you so much for being here and doing this with me today. It's my pleasure, Court. Thank you for having me. Blues Traveler, one of the biggest bands to come out of the 1990s for sure, was not an overnight success by any means. Take me back to the late 80s when you guys formed and you were playing constantly in New York City.
1: Yeah, well, we uh, actually started in my basement uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. I was 13 and John was 16, I believe. And I had a little basement band and we both were playing in the... Princeton High School Studio Jazz Band. We actually went on to win the Berkeley High School Jazz Competition that year. And one of the reasons why we won was because John Popper was the soloist, featured soloist on um, one of the songs. So after we went to Berkeley, I invited John to come check out my basement band. And we were called The Establishment at that point. And from that point on, John became the frontman, lead singer. And sort of changed the direction that we were headed. We were playing sort of romantics covers, and you know David Bowie, The Police, that kind of thing. And as soon as John joined, we started playing George Thorogood music with a little bit more soul, a little bit more deeper meaning, and uh, like "Bad to the Bone," of course. And so from that point on, John and I were in the group together. We had Chen Kinsler join the group shortly thereafter, and Bob Sheehan moved to New York when we were 17, and got signed when we were 19. And from that point on, Blues Traveler was my life.
0: And it was a constant thing. You guys played in the early 90s, Wetlands, and that whole scene down in
1: Lower Manhattan, you all were playing very frequently. Yeah. I mean, Wetlands was just, you know, a step in our sort of path. The first gigs we played were Mondo uh, uh, Nightingales on 2nd Avenue and 13th Street. And those were Monday night shows. And they were basically, we had all of our college friends come down and we started like a little scene, like it started being, you know, Monday night at Nightingale's, Tuesday night at Mondocane, Wednesday night, we'd be playing, you know, some random place in New Jersey, like a frat, you know, frat house or something. And then Thursday night, we'd come back and play uh, The Wetlands. Friday night, we'd play Mondo Perso. Saturday night, we, you know, every night of the week we were playing. I think there was one month where we played 30 nights out of the 31 nights. Wow. Um, and uh, it just became a scene. Friends became fans and they helped to lift us up some record execs started paying attention and uh one of them uh he came down and saw us play and was just blown away by the whole scene and you know we got a contract with Bill Graham i think it was 89 he came down to see us because uh his son David Graham went to Columbia and saw us play at i think it was Reality Fest 1111 and uh he sent his dad a little mixtape that we'd made or a live tape i think it was and his dad said send us a letter saying, don't sign with anybody, wait till I come to New York and check you guys out. And from there, uh, you know, he took over kind of all the contracts and we signed with A&M Records and went into the studio later that spring. And did you have an idea then just how big you guys were to become? You know, I think when you're, you know, 17 years old, you think you're going to be big. <laughs> you, you know, you dream big. Uh, you know, our sights were set on, you know, Madison Square Garden. That was the ultimate place to play in New York. For us the dream was just to play music and tour around the country. Luckily for us we had some really lucky breaks early on. You know Bill Graham put us in front of the Neville Brothers at the Palladium. We were put in front of the Allman Brothers. We opened up for Leonard Skinner at Cow Palace in San Francisco and you know we were given all these opportunities, these breaks and got to learn from these amazing influencers of our generation. So every summer we would go out on tour with the Allman Brothers and it was like going to rock school for 2-3 weeks. It was the way that a band should learn how to play by seeing their mentors rocking a crowd and, and really, you know, taking them through a, an experience from the beginning of the show to the end of the show. Um, the Allman Brothers were masters at that. So we, we learned a lot. And I think by the time we recorded our fourth record and uh, our songs got started uh, playing on the radio, uh, we were ready for that kind of success or at least the notoriety of being able to play bigger venues.
0: And then in 1994... You guys really broke huge when when Four came out and Run Around and The Hook.
1: You won a Grammy Award that year. What was that like? What did that feel like when all that happened? Yeah, I mean, it it had been building, uh, you know, like we put out our record in 1990 and we were in a van. um, And then by 92, we were in just a tour bus, but it was like the cheapest tour bus we could get. And we were, you know, we had probably you know four or five uh, crew guys with us and um it was just you know we were all piling into a into a bus and uh, an eagle bus and we had you know we planned big so we got a semi trailer that would follow us around and uh and by uh, our third record save a soul that was the one that we decided that we were going to we were geniuses and that we were going to produce it ourselves and uh for us to go down to new orleans and um we went to this uh, little house in Bogalusa, Louisiana, uh, called Studio in the Country, and we recorded um, uh, Save a Soul, just on our own. We had a couple of sound guys that we, uh, we brought down with us. Um, and that was, you know, for us, it was very liberating not having a producer kind of, you know, studying everything that we did. We, we were able to just be very creative and uh, play the music that we loved. Um, but I think uh, John also had his motorcycle crash in 92, and so we were um, forced to kind of stop, p- sort of b- put a bookmark in that recording process, and um, we were, you know, forced for about six months to to um, sort of reconvene, get John to heal up, and we went back and re-recorded "Save a Soul," and um, and I think it's, it's it's one of my favorite records just because it. it it puts a place marker in that time when we were sort of masses of our own destiny. No one really, you know, weren't really famous yet, but we had a a great following. We'd gone out to Colorado, we'd gone out to San Francisco, we'd, um, you know, opened for a bunch of people, and it was like, it was really feeling like it was hitting. And so by the time we recorded four, I think we were ready. Like I said before, we were ready for whatever, whatever success came. When we were actually sitting in the theater during the Grammys... I think it was 1995, we were sort of in the early awards presentation, and I think Leonard Nimoy was, he walked in in front of us and John and I were like, that's Leonard Nimoy, you know, and Bob and Chan were still at the hotel, I think they'd woken up late, so we were, you know, we were having a great time, Uh, we'd gone to the uh, Grammy nominee party the night before, we got to hang out with Sheryl Crow and uh, Stevie Wonder, it was just, you know, a blast. So John and I woke up early and we were all dressed up and we sat down and I think we were up against the Eagles, I think Dave Matthews, I think the Led Zeppelin had just reissued something. So these were, you know, great musicians, great bands, you know, our heroes. And when they announced Blues Traveler had won the Grammy for Best Pop Song by a Vocal Group or Duo, John and I both jumped up like out of complete surprise. We looked at each other and we're just like, you know, no way, and uh, we had no, you know, no expectations whatsoever. had no speech or anything written. And uh, John jumped up so fast that he like banged his knee against the chair in front of him. and so we we walked up there, and Bobby and Chan unfortunately hadn't arrived to the theater yet. So we uh, John and I walked up to the podium, and John just you know, as he's apt to do when he takes a microphone, He's always loved uh, comedy and John Belushi was one of his biggest influences. And so I think he got up there and he's like um I was born in a log cabin that my father made, you know, just kind of got the crowd and and instantly, you know, I think people related that we were just, you know, we were <laughs> hopefully likable and that we were, you know, very, you know, humble and just couldn't believe that we'd won this, you know, fabulous honor. John was trying to remember the people to thank. And I was like, let's thank our girlfriends. And so John was like, oh, yeah, Sophie and Felicia. Yeah. And he was like, let's thank the record company. You know, and I was whispering behind him. So that was just an amazing, amazing moment. And it was just one in a series of very lucky, fortunate events that we were able to experience together as a group. As a group, you go through good times and bad times together. And I think for us, um, you know, up until that point, we were you know, we would put all everything into it. You know, we'd live together in a you know crappy apartment in Brooklyn, and we'd put all our money into a shoebox, you know, for gas money and to buy drumsticks and harmonicas. You know, one day I opened the shoebox up and there were just a bunch of little pieces of paper saying, I owe the band $5. I owe the band $10. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, no more shoebox. I'm going to take care of the money now. But from every experience we had, we shared it. And it was like trials and tribulations. And, That whole period is just this blur of, you know, wonderful moments and flashes of friends and family and, um, you know, good times. And, you know, of course, there was sadness and tragedies that occurred along the way. But we, um, you know, we were a family. And I think, you know, I look back on that and just I wouldn't have changed a thing.
0: You guys toured with the Rolling Stones. We did. I wouldn't change that.
1: (laughs) I would think not. Do you have any Keith and Mick stories? Um, so, yeah, well, we were very blessed and honored to be um, invited to be on the Bridges of Babylon tour. I think that was 97, 98 or around that time. And so we were on the first leg of that tour. You know, I'm a huge Rolling Stones fan. Charlie Watts is, you know, one of my idols. And so I was completely blown away and sort of, you know, uh, in, in awe. And Nick came in the first, very first gig. And I think we were in the ball boy room of some soccer stadium, and Mick came in with a bottle of champagne and just said, you know, I just want to say, you know, thanks for being on this tour. And, you know, here's, let's have a good one. And, and, uh, we were just like so blown away and we like, you know, couldn't believe that Mick Jagger was, Jagger was, uh, was welcoming us to a uh, Rolling Stone tour. And, you know, they treated us so well. Um, uh, uh, we played, you know, snooker in the back and, you know, they had the most amazing backstage catered to the, you know, to the nines and, so that was just an experience that, you know, I'll never forget as well. Just, you know, doing 10 or so dates with the Stones was a lifelong dream. So, you know, in my life, I feel I've been very lucky to have been blessed with meeting the right people at the right time, being a part of such a great group of, um, of musicians as uh, I'm lucky enough to play with. And and to be able to say that I did all that and then to have also have a family and have a life outside of the band, I just feel very blessed. Absolutely. You had hinted at it before,
0: but there were tragedies along the way uh, in the late 90s when Bobby died. Bobby oh, yeah. Sheehan
1: died. Uh, the band came to a crossroads, really, right? What was the decision there to keep going? Well, yeah, I mean, that was the, the saddest. You know, obviously, the most tragic moment of any friendship is when you have somebody that passes away. It was, you know, he was way too young. I think he was 29 and we were, you know, devastated. Um, as a group and I remember hearing the news I was coming back from Canada with my wife in the car and uh, we heard the news and my manager called me and it was just you know I had to pull her out over the side of the road and I just you know was in shock for days uh, weeks and we were you know we played a gig in I think it was in San Francisco at the at the Warfield in June end of June and uh, he passed away August 20th and I think we were just taking a little break from Horde that year and that we were going to get back together for September shows. It rocked my whole world. like My whole identity had been wrapped up around this group and this these uh, three other guys. And so I was at a loss, as we all were. We came back for the funeral, and John Chan and I and uh, Johnny Sheehan, uh, we carried his casket. And it was, you know, I broke down crying. I, I gave a little, you know, very small short speech, but I just I couldn't hold in the tears when I was talking about my you know, my friend, my comrade, my, you know, bass players and drummers have a very tight connection and um we'd we played probably, you know, a thousand, two thousand shows together and you know, you look at each other at any moment during a show and you know what one another is thinking. So it's it's like almost like losing a twin or something with it. You have that psychic connection with. So that was really, you know, the hardest moment, um, probably in my musical life was um, hearing that news and, and, you know, trying to figure out how to uh, put everything back together. It was about six months or five months later that, um, you know, we kind of had a band meeting. And I think it was actually at my daughter's christening. We were all together in New York. And I said, um, you know, guys, I think Bob would have probably wanted us to go on we said, well, let's let's give it a try. Let's try it a couple bass players and just see see if it feels right. So we did, I think it was four gigs with several bass players, and one of them, which was O'Teal, and that was amazing. But I think O'Teal was, you know, destined for bigger better things. But we love playing with O'Teal and love him to death. Uh we played with uh, uh Steve Manning um out here in Seattle. I think we did another gig with um oh the next gig was with Tad, who's um our current bass player and obviously Chan's brother. And I think we, you know, Steve was great, but uh, he played a little bit too similarly to the way Bobby played it, and so Tad had a new take on it. And for us, I think that's what we decided was we, if we we're going to be continue on, it was going to have to be Blues Traveler sort of mock Two, where we were, you know, playing the old music but also writing new music and taking another step or evolution. And so uh, we we went, went down to Austin, Texas, and just started. Uh, rehearsing writing and uh, we decided we should add a keyboard player as well just to kind of change the sound up just to make it so like it was a different band so everyone knew that we weren't trying to recreate exactly the old blues traveler
0: so the band has kept at it I mean, you play red rocks every year every fourth of july you're playing red rocks you just celebrated 30 years together as a band correct late last year your 13th album came out that's right lucky 13 what do you uh, credit for keeping the band going all this time
1: I think it's, you know, appreciation for each other and for what we've built. So we've, you know, done something for such a long time that it just feels natural when we all get together on stage, it just feels right. And when I'm away from it for too much, I mean, you you like taking little breaks from each other. But when you get back on stage, it just, you know, everything comes naturally. And it's just, it feels like coming home. So, you know, I think a lot of groups go through difficult times, and there's fights and that kind of thing. And we, we have those as well. But when we're on stage together and we're jamming, it feels like it's the right place to be. And when it stops feeling that way, that's when I think we'll, we'll stop going on the road.
0: But music's not the only thing going on in your world. That's right. One of the things you have going on is the shop that we're sitting in right now. That's right. Paper and Leaf. That's right. Tell me about uh, the, the idea behind putting the shop together.
1: Yeah, so like in 2012, Washington State passed an initiative 502 to um, legalize recreational cannabis for sale in licensed shops. And I remember being in a tour bus, going rumbling down the road, looking at my phone and just seeing that this, this news had come out that it had been passed by the voters and um, that they were going to be putting this initiative into effect. And I was thinking, wow, I wonder if there'll be any licenses on Bainbridge Island where I live. And so I started doing some research and um, my wife, uh, Sophie, was working with this woman, Sarah and uh, Gordon. And she, her husband, Steve Kessler, was uh, also doing some research into it and since our you know wives were working together they were like you guys should get together and talk about it so i remember giving steve a call and saying why don't do this together you know let's do this you're he was a a film producer and uh being a dog trainer called the brooklyn dog whisperer we both east coast we spoke the same kind of language we're both sarcastic and uh, and we just got along instantly and I think we started down this road and we put our name in for the um, license and eventually in 2015 we were able to secure location and we opened the doors, I think it was June of 2015. So it's been just about four years now for us. You know, we kind of were on the same page. We wanted to do something different. We wanted to kind of break the stigma. We knew we lived on this beautiful island, you know, kind of a bedroom community of Seattle. So there was some affluence here, but there was also a lot of like working class people as well. We knew we wanted to create something that felt welcoming. When you came in, it was going to be something different than your usual sort of, you know, bars on the, on the window kind of dispensary. So we had this warehouse. We just kind of had an open pallet and we decided we were going to, instead of, just having everything behind sort of glass counters and with a a paper menu and having a long sort of roped line, we were going to actually open the floor up and have people, kind of wander around and and explore, kind of like an art gallery. And so we put all the canvas into sort of picture frames with like glass in front of them. Customers can't actually touch the product until they purchase it in Washington. And then the next thing was like, let's hire a staff that's going to be knowledgeable and friendly and welcoming. And let's have, you know, just some beautiful pallet wood everywhere and sort of create this kind of vibe that was relaxed, but also um, kind of, you know, hip. And um, let's have a record player. Let's join the music thing. Um, you know, you're in rock and roll. Let's, let's put a record player in here. We're playing like Rod Stewart. Everything that was sort of harkened back to the days of our 20s, and life was good. And so when we opened our doors, we were accepted by our community, which was a wonderful feeling.
0: Besides looking different, Paper and Leaf acts differently, too. They run seminars for senior citizens, offer discounts to those who can't afford medical marijuana, even operate a shuttle to pick people up at the ferry. They've opened a CBD coffee shop next door called Market Elevated, but Hill's especially excited about his latest business development—something that ties Paper and Leaf back to his roots as a drummer.
1: We've got a point of sale uh, called Click Track. You know, sort of a nod to the uh, hat to being a drummer, and <clears throat> you know, you use a click track to keep the band together when you're recording. And for us, the point of sale systems that were available to the cannabis industry were really lacking in um, keeping everything. Uh, your inventory management, as well as your menu, as well as your, you know, your sales and your tracking were all kind of disjointed. And we we weren't able to be able to track like what a certain customer liked or what product was the best seller. All those kind of metrics, which are normal in the usual retail environment, weren't available to uh, cannabis retailers. And so we decided, let's build it ourselves. And so we partnered up with some great developers and just here in this little shop, we've developed a pretty amazing point of sale that we just started released today called ClickTrack. You know, we uh, showed it to other retailers and they're just like, this is awesome. It blows the other ones away. Very excited about that. And if you have a passion for what you do, whether it's music or whether it's taking away the stigma of cannabis or trying to help other people in your same field, like solve problems, it doesn't feel like work. It feels just like, you know, a hobby or a project or an adventure. And I think that's where... I am right now, is having an adventure with both the music still continuing on and then this cannabis adventure. And it's just been a real blast. I've been very fortunate. And I've got an amazing family. So I'm blessed thrice. Do you see yourself as a musician first or businessman first? What's what's on the front burner these days? Um, Well, I love playing music. Nothing beats being on stage. That feeling of like, you know, flying out to that, you know, because we all live in different parts of the country. And so we usually fly to our first gig, and then we get on the bus. and that that feeling, and you know I'm sure there are other musicians out there that know this feeling very well, when you're put your bag under the bay into the bay and you you walk up on those those steps and you know you're gonna be living on this bus for the next two or three months or more. And uh, you put your stuff in your bunk, It's just like that feeling of adventure, like you're you're boarding a ship, and uh, I love all the Patrick O'Brien master and Commander kind of books. And those guys used to go out for years and years at sea. And, you know, there'd be different ports of call. They'd they'd uh, have adventures and wars and battles. So you kind of feel like a pirate when you're going out and shipping. ship. And it's, it sounds corny, but it really is. You're with your band of brothers and you're going on this adventure. And so uh, there's that feeling which you miss when you're away from it. You know, by the end of yeah, 50 gigs and you're like, oh, I can't wait to get home and, you know, Screw these guys! You know I can't, can't believe he you know ate all the you know fucking pita chips. I really you know I was I was saving that hummus or that Thai food and in the fridge or whatever it is. Those kind of moments make you really want to go home and uh, you know you miss your family and you miss birthdays and there's a lot of downside to being on the road. But in in my backbone, that's that's what I love doing. Being home, it's like the cannabis uh, shop and Market Elevated and Click Track. These are things which excite me because it's something new. It's something, I've done music for 30 years, and that feels normal, natural for me. This is not out of my element, but it's something exciting, a passionate new project. And uh, I'm really excited because the cannabis industry is exploding right now. It feels like the kind of dot-com era in the late 90s. And I think there's going to be a huge wave of legalization, or I'm knocking wood here, that there'll be a huge uh, wave of legalization and you're seeing states are now realizing that it is medicine for a huge majority of people. The recreational cannabis, let's take it out of the black market and let's put it into a regulated industry where you can tax it and you can you get the revenue from the taxes and use it for building infrastructure or education or, you know, what have you. Let's just get it away from the black market because that's where kids are getting it from. And, you know, having a heavily regulated market where there should be strict rules about anybody under 21 who's not a medical patient shouldn't be able to buy cannabis. And I think that's that's a good rule. In my opinion, it's just so much safer than alcohol or even tobacco. I think there's a lot of benefits to um, the art world and music world and so many things which cannabis has uh, inspired that we should be grateful for. And I think it's been long, far too long stigmatized and far too long, there's been uh, incarcerations that, are, that should be expunged, and people should be let out of prison for having done nonviolent possession. That's that's my feeling, is that there's it's just an exciting thing. You could, there's so many different opportunities in this industry to be an advocate, to be a business person, to be a grower, a retailer. The world is open to exploration, and I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. Brendan Hill, thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with us today.
0: Thank you, Court. Thanks to Paper and Leaf and Blues Traveler's Brendan Hill, who's proving even the biggest rock musicians still have time for a side hustle. I'm Court Harson. Thank you for listening, and join me again next time for another edition of B Side.